Hello, welcome to Smiley's. Tonight, we're discussing Forge of Darkness, chapters 5 and 6. This is the discussion part. We are doing spoilers up to chapters 5 and 6 of Kirkana's. Spoilers, Miles and Book of the Fallen, and then also Miles and Empire, and basically any other series that we deem necessary. Uh, if you have not watched the other episodes, I don't know why you're here, but welcome nonetheless. I am Lee. I'm joined by Mora. Hello, Mora. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm uh, doing fairly good. How about you? I'm okay. Do you think this uh, is going to be a success today? Our recording? I, uh, this is what, the third time, fourth time? I, I've lost count at this point. I know. Yeah. <laughs> just... yeah so, um, just bear with us if we seem to be like skipping things or just rushing yeah. past things because we are, we are so done. <laughs> right. It's a good chapter, but... Like, I'm sorry, but it's, it's yeah. It's, you can only discuss it so many times. Right. Okay. Shall I begin? Chapter 5? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Please feel free to interrupt me. Feel free to bring in your thoughts, questions, because I understand everything that happens here. So if you have any doubts, you can of feel course. free to ask me. Yeah. So uh, right now, we yeah. are at Barrett's Solitude, where is, uh, where, you know, Arathan is riding along with his father, his tutor, his border swords, and his gate sergeant. So, <clears throat> as they're riding, uh, he remembers his tutor's uh, teachings, who has taught him that Barrett Solitude used to be a sea once, and it has taken like nearly thousand years to dry up, and it's just a plain, uh, <laughs> just a plain now. And so, as he's riding, somehow Arathan starts thinking that you know he can almost imagine there is water underneath him, and you know. So, I, I don't know. Again and again, this imagery of water keeps coming up with Arathan. Yes, Lee, yes, we have spoken all this before. So, <laughs> just bear with me. No, 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 yeah, go on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as he's uh, riding away, you know, for the first time he's leaving home, so he can almost feel a new sort of freedom. He can feel his thoughts rising through the air, unknown to others. And, you know, it's a precious secret kind of freedom that he's facing now. And he knows that if he says these things to his tutor, Sagander, he is not going to understand concepts like that. Because just like he knows that there are different kinds of freedom, there are also different kinds of prisons, right? Prisons that stifle your thoughts, stifle your words, etc. And he thinks these are like gray walls, you know, surrounding you. These are the types of prisons he's been seeing. And as he's riding, he is, you know, pretty exhausted. He's wearing this heavy armor for the first time. He's wearing a helm, he's sweaty, he's riding a horse and all that. But, you know, but he's still quite happy because, you know, it's a new kind of freedom now. Right. So as he's thinking all these things, let's cut to the morning. We don't get my, many of these flashback scenes, isn't it? This is one of the few flashback scenes we get, like things the day has begun. No, is this very common? I don't think it's very common. I wouldn't say very common, but I can think of at least a few scenes more like this. I can only think of one. Siege of Pale. Oh, there are a few and I think Reaper's Gale and Bone Hunters. Like there were armies already marching and then they and then they think back to how they devoted and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well there is but one there later in this book too. So Oh. <laughs> yeah. It happens right. a lot more here. This happens a lot more here in like Organa. So Because everyone has lots of thinking to do. Yeah. Um, I mean you know, just to be clear, we still love the book. <laughs> we are just being snarky about it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, 
right so that morning when they were getting ready and they were about to leave uh, we see arathan is quite sleepy and he's feeling cold he misses his bed and the whole yard is like packed and jumbled and everyone is running here and there getting ready for this uh, long trip and sagander is sort of panicking because he finally realizes that you know there are no pack horses so he had packed a lot of trunks i believe which he can no longer carry and so he shouts at arathan to please come and help him find a place to keep his scales and weights and all that right and <clears throat> arathan has actually chosen his gelding horse not the war war horse i don't know why he has chosen besra and so he had already packed everything on besra but he takes the scales and weights which sagander wants him to take and he's slowly unpacking and repacking stuff and all of a sudden the yard goes quiet because return to the yard traconis <laughs> so he comes and he says what are you doing and he takes away the scale and like hands it out to this uh, to his side and a servant comes mm-hmm. and takes it away this is an important symbolic scene in case you didn't notice because <laughs> I, i think we can we can discuss this more but i feel like it just uh, clearly shows that he's there is somewhere he is the scales are falling away from his eyes you know he's no longer being i believe you use the word balanced yeah right yeah and uh, one of the border swords i think galak notices and he even says that you know he he felt like an omen. Shivered, yeah. an omen like the abyss shivered or something mm-hmm. so right so all arathan has are weights he's carrying literal weights from his house which are of no use to anyone except you know make his pack heavy Yeah, yeah, Symbolism. maybe it's important. <laughs> oh, we should have an overlay like that, right? That each time we bring up symbolism or something. Right. Okay, so as they're leaving, uh, he sees that his three half-sisters have come, wearing black, to say bye. And <laughs> and once they leave uh, the yard, once they leave outside, Sagander makes him stop and, you know, makes him... I don't know why he does this. He makes him look back and say... this was your whole world till today and now i think you have an answer for why he does these things but it's okay we all know it <laughs> he's projecting he's a well yeah he is he is uh, yeah. <laughs> he is <laughs> okay this is not okay i i'll not <laughs> no more observations yeah. i'm just doing this summary yeah, sorry <laughs> so he makes him stop and says that you know this has been your world until today and from now on you have to make your own path in the world and see even your sisters don't like you nobody likes you you are a very unlikable guy and your father forced them to come and say goodbye so they made sure they came in black so that you see that they are wearing black and in so many ways uh, kural galen is different but you know black as a symbol of mourning or something is you know it's very our world thing or rather western world thing so then uh, he asks saratan what is your uh, repack the gifts do you think the gifts are worthy for the lord of hate and arathan says snarky dude he says that is for the lord to decide not me <laughs> again saratan gets angry and says you know this is you know i'm still your tutor and i'll be your tutor for now and all that then they pass this site uh, where arathan almost drowned at age 9 and he seems to remember this place all he remembers is that this is a trail at the end of which cattle are taken and slaughtered and uh, sagander says something like i'm you know i'm surprised that you remember it and we sort of speculated that maybe sagander was 
feeling guilty about it or maybe he had a hand in it we don't know and i don't think we ever find out so anyway they're passing the planes and there is some eco conservation observations like there is lots of deforestation and he wonders like what happened to all these missing trees maybe a, a whole city could have been built and you know maybe they did build a city so right so by noon they take a break they almost reach the edge of dracon's lands and so <laughs> they take a break and this is where we begin all this strange super weird rituals, rituals. yeah yeah so the first meal is something that has to be cooked after that they are not going to cook during the day and the first meal has to be shared with everyone and oh, there there is a whole bunch of these so so anyway they stop but i don't know they, maybe they serve a purpose in like bringing out the characters because unless these things happen we don't get to interact with them right it's going to be just routine they stopped they hunted a rabbit they skinned it and they kept going you know to prevent something boring like that this is i i don't know it at least breaks up the monotony yeah yeah among other things i think it serves like an in world purpose not just you know obviously it fosters up the characters you say but i think such rituals uh actually do serve an in world purpose because uh i think they bring it up in the book that like the first day is when most injuries occur because you need to like stretch out and your no 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 that's not what i'm asking why does it have to be a specific cooked meal and not on the other days why do they have to have like hot food on the first day that doesn't serve a purpose taking a break Because, taking a long break and all that is fine i mean, I mean they do yeah i mean cook yeah. food they do cook like stews and stuff it just this is more it's only dinner time lunch time they don't cook that's that's what they say during the day we're yeah, not going to have yeah they walk because staying somewhere to cook ride. things takes time right so but they have to yeah. ride during the day no that's what so, as feren says later in this chapter that traditions generally get uh, yes uh, you know they get misinterpreted because people lose the meaning and keep only the ritual so i'm sure this is something like that maybe they thought instead of telling everyone to just sit around take a break maybe they said if we can cook we can grab everyone for 20 minutes and make them you know relax yeah maybe. i guess i guess yeah okay so we solved the mystery of one ritual yep. let's see <laughs> the others so right, so no they idea. stop huh? sorry we have no idea about the others This is oh, there uh, is one. Yeah, there is. Uh, there is one right away because they stop and you know, Draconis has to go first, feed his horse first, and share water with his horse only, not with his other you know, the lesser horses. He he only has to share with the war horse, and Arthur is uh, he doesn't like it. He thinks that you know because he rode Besra the whole day, he has to share with Besra. Raskin mm-hmm. stops him, and Draconis supports it, says that you know you can take the war horse. the boy has to awaken to his responsibilities so this is what happens this ritual i don't have it yeah <laughs> what i oh. think it's just a it's we well fair fair this is like the fifth time i make this mistake and this is going to happen consistently fairin not fanner yeah. fairin as you said mentioned later that the rituals exist for a reason but Harold Galen is a very classist society, borderline casteist, you know. There's like yeah. strictly defined hierarchies, so of course you're not going to share your goods with the lesser horses and only your war horse with which you go into battle because yeah, you do need to kind of have its loyalty to be with you when you actually ride into battle, but for such trips what use is it? Not particularly, so it's just 
the tradition has stuck around because it reinforces uh, classist values, which are omnipresent yeah. throughout Girl Belly, and I love it. It's just, it's so good to read as a modern reader. It hurts yeah. so much, and I'm going to be so angry later, believe me, but we're going to get there. I mean, even horses have gas, too. See? <laughs> Do we need to use <laughs> Okay. Okay, right. <clears throat> so, then when this meal is happening, Draconis takes Feren away to a private chat, and uh, Raskan is, you know, he takes his time to scold Arathan, saying, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed for you or something and all. And then Narathan says, I chose the wrong horse in the morning. That was my mistake. But, you know, I, we have to honor every beast that serves us. And Raskan gets super offended and he says, what is this nonsense you're talking? Is this, <laughs> is this Sagander's fault? Like in any world would Sagander say <laughs> something like honor every beast that serves you? No, but, you know, Raskan is angry uh, with the tutor. And then Narathan says, no, no, that is my own thought. And then he says, if these are your thoughts, just keep them to yourself because you're not the one to challenge Ticed Ways. Who is the one to challenge Ticed Ways? His father. Yeah, the drag. So, right. I, before you go on, I do kind of want to mention, because I brought this up just now, that there, there is a parallel between the legions in Kuril Galen, you know, the Kuril legions and the Hust legion about who gets, you know, who is noble-born who is more important, yeah. who gets all the praise. But, you know, we must honor all the beasts that served under us, except no, we don't. We have to cast them aside because they're lesser somehow. Symbolism. Anyway, please carry on. <laughs> I am not doing this editing. Sorry. <laughs> just imagine these things. Just picture, like, there's a big, like, rainbow here as I move my hands. No. Just, like, no. symbolism. Just picture, just pretend it's there. Please carry on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, right, and then uh, this is when, you know, Arathan sees, he notices the horses of the border swords, they are not, you know, hobbled or they're not tied up or anything, they're just standing there, just proudly, they're just standing still, and uh, and he thinks, you know, first you need to have pride, after pride, you can have disdain, so he needs to develop pride, and then he can disdain probably his father, this whole thing is like a hate fest for his father, Right. So, <clears throat> next, uh, the border swords who are left behind, Rint and Will and all those, they start wondering what does Draconis want to do with Ferran? I mean, beyond the obvious. So, and the wind says, you know, <laughs> what? And the wind says that uh, Ferran has her own mind and, you know, it's her decision whether she wants to choose or not. And whichever way she chooses, we are all going to support her. And everyone is like, yeah, obviously, we're going to support her. She's a border sword. And then Will wonders, what exactly is a concert? <laughs> oh, you knew this was coming up, right? And he calls them uh, cross boys, which is somehow worse than a priestess. Which, which is so strange. That whole society is, they're so messed up and then they are so judgmental and so, so weird. Right, Arrint doesn't like talk like this. And then, you know, this is when Galak brings up that. He saw Draconis holding out the scales and all that. This is when that, that talk comes up. Anyway, the meal is ready. Rin tells Raskan that uh, let's eat. And then Sagander wants to know why why exactly did you stop now? Because, you know, they just started riding. They could have ridden a quite a long distance. And then this is when they say, no, no, you, the first day you have to start slow, loosen up your joints, etc. And even though we discussed this before, I think this is a meta way of saying that the book is going to start slow. We have to loosen up our joints, settle into the ride. 
even though we might be experienced we might know all these things we still have to you know settle in and most of the injuries take place on the first day you know that so i believe that should be part 1 of forge of darkness so anyway then they are uh, discussing the routes they can take uh, because they wanted to be secretive they are going to ride around abara delac they're not going to ride through it and then you know uh, raskan asked that you know we are all a small group so let's just socialize with each other let's mingle let's chit chat and <laughs> rint sees that uh, his sister returns and you know this is one of the few good sibling relations we see because she just shakes his head shakes her head and then he feels quite angry and then i know they they all start uh, bantering will says that uh, <laughs> how can we socialize with these guys one is an old man and one is a rabbit in a boy skin and he seems very proud of this expression that he called arathan a rabbit in a boy skin then uh, feren actually at this point comes to arathan's defense and she says that uh, there you know they're continuing traditions without understanding the reasons for them and what that boy did was right he gave thanks to the beast that served him will says no no you have to give thanks to the beast that you're going to ride into battle with and she says why not give thanks to all of them rint sees that his sister has this fire which he has not seen in years uh, usually he would have welcomed it he would have been happy but he doesn't know what has caused this you know outburst and so he's quite uneasy <clears throat> right so at this point arathan is sitting apart looking away and you know feren starts her thing she goes and introduces herself and she invites him to share the meal and explains all these things it's it's pretty uh, i don't know if i i know that you thought it was all fine but yeah it did, it did not sit well with me because she started making her moves and she even tells him that you did the right thing with the horse and all that and then she asked <laughs> yeah right and then she asks him if there are you know things that are expected from you and things that your heart wants what would you choose and he says i'm just a bastard son and then she says you know if you are a bastard then it's your father's failing it's not he is not acknowledge you it's not your fault what gasp i think you should say audible gasp yeah audible gasp <gasps> right so uh, obviously with all this attention he feels confused frightened and maybe aroused we wouldn't put it past him so they share this meal they eat uh, i this is a small diversion or uh, i don't know why we need this but they eat meat bread and lard and raskan tells him that during the jalarkan campaigns they almost died because of the cold rint says that's because they were eating too many carbs and proteins but it is fat which is needed because fat protects you from cold <clears throat> and then he asks did they succeed in the battle when they were chasing the jalarkan and raskan says no they returned within one day because it was too cold for them right so moving on draconus is not part of these uh, conversations and arathan wonders why anyone even likes him how can he command loyalty when he's you know not even like mingling with people and being friendly or whatever only that he knows all he knows about his father is that he he fought very well he wore his armor well and he had a very plain sword maybe that's important that he had a plain sword who knows so anyway they resume the journey do you have any thoughts anything to drink uh not particularly <clears throat> it's just we rehash the point about you know the taste being rather woefully unprepared 
for fighting in any capacity. Yeah. Which, yeah. You know, and now they're careening off the Civil War. Wonder how well that'll go. Um, but, <clears throat> yeah, beyond that, I don't think there's much to say here. Except, Thank that, you. you know, Iron Thunder 17, so... Keep remembering Arathan is 17 when, whenever Ferran comes up. Keep remembering yeah. that age. Ferran's about 40. Just FYI. Yeah. Twice. Twice his age. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so uh, they resume the journey and then uh, Arathan sees that Ferran has come again to help him climb his horse. And she says that this beast has accepted you as master because it thinks he's, going, he's riding Hela right now, not Vesra. His war horse. And he's, uh, she says that uh, she thinks that you're going to protect her from Calaris. You want, do you want to put a rainbow symbol here? You want to call it symbolism again? Symbolism. <laughs> I wish we were drinking today. We could have had shots. Right. Yeah. And then he asks. God, I'll be asks, dead within 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, obviously, Arathan is quite confused. But he's outspoken. So, he asks her, did... Did my father order you to be nice to me? And she says, none of this is by his order. But then he's still curious. He wants to know, did they discuss him at all? Uh, she changes the subject and puts him on the saddle and walks away. <coughs> She's so, so disgusting. Right? My first time, I liked her so much, you know. Then, but this time, I'm able to see all this, the way she's been manipulating him, sort of. Right? Now, Arathan, as they're riding, he's quite mad at his father, who seems to be micromanaging everything around him. And then uh, Sagander calls him and tells him that, you know, <laughs> stay away from the filthy border swords because they might have lice. And then uh, he's, he starts his next big lesson. About? Humility? Weakness? Uh, <laughs> weakness Humility is a word that will, it is literally, yeah, allergic. Yeah. Sagander is allergic to humility. No, I don't think Thais have a word for that. They, they might not have a word. Maybe. So anyway, he starts talking about the, uh, weakness and desire. The TLDR is that if you're weak, it's your own fault. Because you're choosing to be weak, and that is a disease of the spirit. And anyone who is not weak, who has power and wealth, automatically <laughs> they are superior in every way. Are you listening, Lee? The, yeah, yeah. I will not accept a wandering mind. <laughs> I love the dialogue so much when Sagander tells Aratha because obviously he is doubting all this and then he says, I will not accept a wandering mind. So anyway, he, uh, did you have anything to say? Did I interrupt you? No, um, No. basically, in classic Thais fashion, Sagander has some somewhat decent ideas that he just confounds with like a whole bunch of horse crap. He doesn't have a single decent idea, no. I mean, he does bring up some interesting points about weakness. and um, When it comes rather, up, let me know. But so far, he, no. Like, he conflates it with, you know, it being an inherent weakness of the spirit. But, like, discipline being a way to, like... It's it's complicated, right? And oh, he no, blows this... it to hell. And it's it's no, just no, weird. No. Saying that weak people are weak is has been the way of oppressors throughout history. This is... I can only talk about my uh, caste system here. And this is the accepted belief that if uh, you are in the lower caste or if you are untouchable, it's entirely your fault. There has been something wrong with you and that is why you ended up in that caste. Right. You there? 
So what I uh, what he does say that interests me is um, oh, so okay. he says something along the lines of um, yeah, I, he will not accept the wandering mind. <laughs> no, no, no! You're looking up something. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So each of us in our lives must fight that battle against desire. Indeed, every struggle that you may perceive is but a facet of that conflict. There are pure desires and there are impure desires. The pure desires give strength to discipline. The impure desires give strength to weakness. So, there is something interesting with that, mm-hmm. except it bears on the definition of what constitutes a pure and an impure desire, which, in you know, in Sagander's mind is anything he doesn't like. And this has also been brought up in, like, religious texts, especially in the church, you know, sins and virtues. But the underlying concept of strength of character making one better and discipline being attainable rather than inherent or innate is, well, it's an interesting concept that's more um, explicitly explored in Stoicism. But Sagander here takes it to his logical extreme of, you know, if you're weak, it's your fault. You're at fault. There's nothing you can do about it. And if you actually could be better, you would be better. So really, you're the one at fault here, which, yeah, no, no one's saying that. No, no, actually, that's a problem. Someone is saying that. Um, So, you know, Um, the other problem I have with this is that this is not extreme by Dice standards. This is like the accepted norm. This is normal, which is just... (laughs) Fuck! So that's that's how these things happen, right? The entire society has to accept that this is the standard. That's the only way people have people can continue to oppress others. You know, this is the, this is the only way. Uh, anytime Erickson does a binary, like pure and impure, uh, strength and weakness, and anytime he does that, it, uh, it has to be from uh, from you know uh, an unlikable guy. He always does yeah. it. He doesn't like binaries. He he never. He always tries to smudge the lines, so this is fun because as soon as he mentions pure and impure desires, Aratan has this doubt. He asks mm-hmm. all the people who cut down these forests here, they had a pure desire, right? They wanted to build their city, but they ended up destroying the forest, which is not a good outcome. So does it mean their strength is not really strength, right? So Sagander has a very good answer for this. Any idea? He doesn't stop thinking about such thoughts because he's confused <laughs> he says, and he's destroying it, yeah. Yeah, he says something like, yeah, if you have discipline, you'll be certain of your answers and you'll not be asking questions like this. And, uh, you know, that's because you're you're weak of spirit. And so, uh, because, you know, you're born from an impure, improper union. And Aratan mm-hmm. asks, you know, if this was his father's weakness. And Sagander has another answer for this. He Just backhands. to backhand him across the face. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's, it's a young boy getting beaten. I'm sorry, we shouldn't be laughing. So anyway, uh, he slaps him, you know, like he usually does. But the difference is that he's wearing a heavy helm now. So it nearly breaks his neck. He gets a concussion. And mm-hmm. because he's riding the war horse, because he's riding the war horse, what happens is uh, Heller goes into action. She immediately kicks him, kicks the horse, uh, breaks the horse's legs, breaks <laughs> Sagander's leg and is about to crush his head. Arathan is still in a daze, but he draws the reins and stops. Uh, Sagander from getting killed and you know uh, he sort of just notices what is going on around him they come they uh, all the others come back they mercy kill the horse and then you know they suggest amputation and all that uh, I, I don't know at some point 
Oh yeah, Arathan also passes out, but he keeps calling himself weak. He feels guilty about this. And who is taking care of him? Wind, Will, Galak. One of them. Hopefully, one of them is taking care of him. And then Sagander passes out. They tie a tourniquet, and you know, then Draconis takes Rint away because he was the only eyewitness who heard what happened, who knows what happened. Okay, cut to later in the day, when you know they have plenty of horse meat now, so they are cooking horse. And <clears throat> Will and Rint are uh, having a chat, and you know, one of them says that so much has happened on the first day, so maybe this is not a good omen. This journey is not a good one. So right now they have changed the plan. Galak and Will are going to take the tutor to Abara Dalak, leave him with the monks, and then they will catch up later. And Rint is asked, you know, why spare the tutor at all? Why not just kill him here and move on? But Rint says, uh, Draconis noticed how hard these guys work to save Sagander, save his life. So someone has to recognize their work, right? Someone has to witness what they've done. So that's why he's saving him and not just leaving him by the wayside. So Ferran comes and says that the boy is just sleeping now. Uh, Will calls, you know, he says something like, I've never seen you mother anyone before. And then <laughs> she says, he still won't see her being a mother. Yes, thankfully. So uh, right now, uh, this is what the border swords. Uh, a little distance away, we have Raskan and Draconis also uh, sitting with a meal. And Draconis says that now Hellar has actually bonded with Arathan so soon. So he was wrong to take her away. No? Okay. <laughs> right. So, no, I thought I thought you would come up with another symbolism thing. No, no, no. no. I didn't actually catch the symbols that time. So, I don't know what you... I don't know what the symbol is here. <clears throat> it's always about, you know, the warhorse is a stand-in for Ferran, Calaris is a stand-in for Draconis, and Arathan is Arathan, is what I keep thinking. Because Heller should not be separated from Arathan, is what Draconis realizes now. Maybe something like that. <clears throat> so Raskan thinks that you know the tutor behaved uh, pretty badly, and Raponus is too generous to his. his you know, <clears throat> I think I've told this before that uh, Galan might not be entirely neutral regarding Draconus, even though he says he's not in favor of Anamander. He seems to have some sort of uh, I don't know. Would you call it a crush on Draconus? Sort of. I don't know. He's he's entirely smitten by Draconis. Each time Draconis comes up, it's always in extremely flattering terms. So anyway, Draconis says things like, uh, the tutor is no longer young. So he has aches in his soul, which has mingled with the aches in his body. So, you know, it's understandable that he hit him or something. And Draconis thinks that he's forgiving Sagander. Oh, sorry, Raskan thinks that he's forgiving Sagander. And uh, Draconis tells him, no, nobody's talking about forgiveness. And even this, that Raskan talking back to Draconis is like a huge thing. He, he thinks that anyone else, any other nobleborn would have beaten him for it. But Draconis is such a nice man. He did not beat him. And he said, no, it's okay. You just spoke from your heart. So it's fine. Yeah. Diced. Why don't... <laughs> if there's one society that needs a civil war, it's this one. Okay. And then Raskan feels, you know, he's so, uh, he's very impressed and all that. And then uh, Rakhonas sees, you know, he sees everyone as equal. From the lowliest servant to everybody, he treats them all equally. In fact, <clears throat> to reiterate this point, 
Prakonos even gives him his pair of moccasins to Raskan because his boots are getting worn down. And uh, obviously nobody can fill Prakonos' large shoes. So he's going to stuff it with grass and use it. <laughs> right. And then uh, Raskan hesitates and uh, he says, you know, I don't want to accept this and all. And then Prakonos says something like, would you refuse your lord's generosity or something? Okay, it's been half an hour and we still have like quarter chapter left. Yeah, uh, then, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I mean, so many <laughs> things are happening and so many more things are going to happen now. Except this huge, uh, <clears throat> this this thing about Dracon is talking about the night sky, which is sort of not very interesting. He says something like this world of stars, they mark the plunge of light into darkness. Each star is a world of its own. And they all swirl a path towards the center where there is death, death of light and death of time. And Raskan is shaken by concepts like this and says, uh, Adrakona says that the ties have become comfortable with ignorance and the scholars are petty and cooped up. And then he says something like, uh, just before we saw Sagander saying something like, uh, discipline is armor and sword both. And Adrakona says knowledge is armor and sword. Because it can protect and isolate, it can also swing, and but it can also cut the wielder, right? So <clears throat> Raskan feels like, like me, this conversation has left him behind. And then Draconis, once again, a gentleman says, I'm sorry, I have embarrassed you, but don't let titles like poet and scholar and all that intimidate you. Nobody's better than you. <laughs> because, you know, in a world of facades, the grins are equally wretched, right? Who grins? Grins of fear, not grins of happiness. And mm -hmm. Raskan asks, do most people live in fear most of the time? Do you have the quote or do you want me to say it? Oh, fear that our, that our opinions might be challenged. Fear that our way of seeing things might be called ignorant, self-serving or indeed evil. Fear for our persons, fear for our future, our fate, our moment of death. Fear of failing in all that we set out to achieve. Fear of being forgotten. Yeah? Yep. So he even says something like, you know, there can be some moments of joy and pleasure and all that, but fear is the constant. And then he asks uh, if Raskan feared darkness as a child and says, yeah, everyone feared darkness as a child because we think it's a big unknown. And then Rekona suddenly observes that Mother Dark has chosen to cover herself in darkness. And he wonders if she even remembers her own childhood. Mm -hmm. Why are you laughing for that? So the soup is almost cool. And then they split up for dinner. And then now we reach that scene where Aratan wakes up in the middle, finds Feran is sharing his blanket. So what does he do? He tries to distract himself thinking of things like the age of gifts when the first Tyst lived. Uh, it is said in their legend that when the first Tyst lived, there was harmony and peace everywhere. Right? There was no light at all. And the stars were a thinning of darkness. And then Arathan wonders if darkness is a veil like that, then what lies beyond it? But he's also been told that light came as an invasion, born when discord first arrived to the heart of the Tyst. He wonders if there was so much peace, then how did discord arise in the first place? And you know what answer he was told? He was told that the soul has chaos, and only discipline can control this chaos. And the first Tyst had grown complacent about the gift, and this is why they succumbed to chaos. And it is their burning souls, actually, that you see as stars. Also, he was, that he would have gone on thinking. Holy shit. 
You did? That just got dark. Like really dark. Oh. <laughs> right. So, uh, but yeah, don't worry. We don't stay in the darkness for long because Farrell is there. And then she takes his virginity and then teaches him to, teaches him stuff like, you know, there are two sides to lovemaking and all that. And scene ends with him thanking her. And because it's an open camp, rent is not too far away. He knows what's happening. Uh, he was told that, I mean, she had told him that Raconis had only requested that she teach things to the boy. He doesn't like it. Uh, he disapproves all this, but Ferran does, you know, she ignores it. He wants her to like leave all these learning games to the court force, all these sordid games, let these high bonds play, play these games. Why don't, you know, we're just border swords. So he's quite angry at Draconis. He can't treat Ferran like that because he knows that if Ferran got pregnant, she's not going to ask for child support. And he thinks that Draconis chose her because of that. But um, yeah, if she got pregnant, he knows that she's going to disappear and she's going to raise the child well. And then Rint would support her no matter what. Yeah. So thank God we're done with this night. The next morning, Sagander wakes up and he's told that, you know, there is no gentle breaking bad news or anything. He's just told, you lost your leg and you're, I'm leaving you alive uh, because, you know, uh, because of reasons. Anyway, uh, Sagander tries to uh, defend himself, saying that he was only defending Draconis's honor and because the boy said that he was Draconis's weakness. And Draconis tells him that he doesn't need anyone to defend his honor. Yeah. Because <laughs> and he's Draconis, even... motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, it reminds me of that uh, line from Hamilton. I, my honor needs no defending or something. I think Washington says. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he says, I, you don't need, I don't need anyone to defend my honor. And then he's actually quite impressed with Arathan's observation that he is Draconis's weakness. And for this, he can actually respect his son. Finally. Finally, he has proved himself as his son and so he can respect him. And because of this, he's going to allow Sagander to live. Okay, and then he scolds Sagander. Yeah, he will and... not devour his soul with peals of laughter. <laughs> no, I'm just, <laughs> just said he'll make some tea. Yeah, and uh, he said I'll I'll exile you. That's what he means basically. He just ends up exiling him, and it's a bit too little, too late, isn't it? After all these years and years of damage, he finally realizes that Sagander has been filling the boy's head with nonsense, and you know, after all the damage is done, he's gone. So <laughs> anyway, I've written in my notes. Magnanimous Draconis says that he will spare the tutor's life, but he faces exile from his lands. So after this, Sagander uh, thinks that he would rather die. He only struck a bastard son. It was not even a highborn boy or anything. So he feels indignancy. Indignant? What would he say? That? He's, he's, he's indignant for a second. Doesn't matter. Moving on. And then he knows that, you know, it's, he's not going to feel this fire for long, but he ha he's going to find a path to vengeance against Arathan first. And then Draconis. I think you had a nice quote for that. No? Okay, it doesn't matter. Something like I will skin them and flay them or display them. Something. You said it during one of the times we recorded this. It, I think that's like what Dracon says he'll do to uh, Zagander, you know, if he ever talks shit oh. again. Okay, okay. Yeah, and then Hence, he thinks you know, it back. He will only exile him rather than, you know, yeah. skin him alive and then. I don't know. I don't remember. Okay, that, it doesn't matter. So anyway, by this time, Raskan comes back with uh, blood broth. 
and second i'll ask if the boy is okay and his closing thought is i should have swung harder have. yeah yeah so finally arathan wakes up and you know <clears throat> it's a big day for him he has all these big feelings and taist is you know they're quite advanced in all these things including ignorance so they don't have any sex education and he thinks that is feren going to be pregnant right away is she like her belly is going to start swelling up today or something and then he sees that the tutor is missing and uh, two border swords are also missing he thinks that you know maybe he's dead and they're gone they want to bury him or something and then he's told the truth right he takes a leak and he sees the amputated leg of sagander lying in the filth yeah right and this morning when handing him breakfast feren is cool towards him okay she doesn't like greet him warmly or anything and he thinks okay. that he has disappointed her and immediately after what do we see we see raskan telling <coughs> telling arathan that you're going to write besra today and you're going to ignore heller for half a day at least so that let her wonder if she has failed you would you call <laughs> manipulation i would Go call on, this just yeah. manipulation yeah and then later in the day he said <laughs> and then later in the day he has to go and you know start love bombing heller and say you know be nice to her and all that and then this will make their bond stronger so yeah and then rakona says sarathan come ride with me and so they start riding uh, arathan doesn't even have an armor with him because he's still recovering from a con- concussion <coughs> and then they start riding rakona says he spared sagander's life twice arathan saved sagander's life twice once by pulling back heller and the second time because he asked all these questions and gave something for his father to respect him and because of that he spared sagander which makes like zero sense to me <coughs> and anyway arathan wonders uh reconnas explains that you know if you have been wondering whether you are your father's weakness there is no dishonor in such a question so if arathan has ever wondered if he was his father's weakness then there is no dishonor in asking such a question because after all Mm-hmm. the matter concerns his life and he has a right to wonder about his place in the world and then he's uh, he says i'm quite quite impressed with you but just stop biting your nails and then he also goes on to say immediately as you say he immediately has to like make the scene nasty and says that women might appreciate soft fingers like this and uh, you know immediately arkan becomes quite isolated again he says he feels that everyone belongs to his father and you know everyone is an extension of his father's will and he's you know he is just playing along then they say that uh, rakona says that yeah you are uh, that if he had continued to live at the keep he w- he would have been vulnerable his half sisters are fine because their mother's family is quite powerful <coughs> then arathan asks why didn't you just kill me as a child and he says that you know a dead arathan is of no use to anyone even a kidnapped arathan is useless what they would want what his enemies would want is to make arathan hate him and all that right feeding Which his anger which is not very food. difficult apparently but then arathan immediately says i have no ambitions and rakona says that's today but things can change in future and then he goes on to say that i understand that you have no cause to love me or feel any loyalty and arathan hits back with with the mic drop line he says i did not know sir what and he says that love needs a cause and for some reason finally draconus shuts up and the <laughs> and the journey goes on so anyway they again stop for to camp somewhere they're trying to 
they are filling water. Uh, Rint is moody. Uh, Feran is moody. Arathan is also moody. Everyone is having a shit day, right? <laughs> Obviously. And then uh, beyond the stream where they have stopped, Trekorus is climbing a slope and looking west. Uh, Rint doesn't like this place because he prefers the jagged to Asatanai because at least the jagged had the decency to beat back Jelek from their expansions. Whereas the Asatanai just laughed whenever the Jelek attacked. Right? Because they don't care about houses, they don't care about their material things. And they actually mean it. In fact, they say things like, wealth is a false measure, honor cannot be hoarded, there is no courage in gold, etc. etc. <coughs> Rint has heard all these words before. And he also noticed that the Asatanai are not hypocrites. So anyway, uh, Feran and Rint, also they briefly discuss Arathan. And this is when we find out that she has lost a son years ago who would have been Arathan's age now. And she also blames the father who, who died by suicide. And then, you know, they have some bickering. And then she tells him that you have this imaginary perfect sister in your head. And that's not me or something. So anyway. One sec. So anyway, for the last bit, we have the only warrior Azathanai, who is called the protector, who is a Tel Akai half-blood and who is made to kill Mandarus, called, come on, Grisenfal. And he comes up saying something like, I think at this at least, you, I, it's your favorite. Go yeah. on. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> so yeah, uh, Grisenfal comes along and... Uh... Or something along the lines of uh, Draconus, I brought ale, or something like that. Yeah. Probably not in that voice, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it's in that exact voice. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so anyway, he comes to them as, as a man who has nothing to fear, who has nothing to lose. He exudes pleasure. He encourages amusement. His company is like a warm embrace. So many good things about him. And then he starts introducing himself to everyone. Uh, so when he shakes Arathan's forearm, he says that <clears throat> you have a sword wielder's arm and he calls him an inconvenient son lost to a grieving mother. And he wonders, you know, is this the hand that is going to backstab Draconis one day? And Arathan again repeats that I have no ambitions. But and if others do, they'll never find him because he intends to live in hiding forever. Then Grison asks uh, Draconis if darkness is a weapon and if it's a weapon against whom is it intended to strike? And this is the answer he wants to find and that's why he is going to Karthanas. And then to Feren, he gives an even longer introduction. He says that he is a warrior who misses every fight, who sleeps through every battle, who smiles at challenges and blah, blah, blah. And then he warns her that she is too young to have lost hope. Her voice holds a tragic tale of loss and so, you know, if he can hear the pain. Anyway, after this, there is some singing and there's some drinking. Arathan passes out immediately. And he wakes up with a hangover. <clears throat> and he sees that the next day Grizzin has left them. But everyone seems to be happy. Because Grizzinfal had come among them and left. But he had taken something away with him. And after this, Draconis and Arathan have a chat. And he wants to know, why did this Azathanai call you friend? And Draconis says, no, no, he just calls everyone that. And they keep writing. And Arathan's thoughts again come back to the beginning of the chapter. Where he thinks about, you know, types of freedom, types of prisons. And again, something about water. So, and then he uh, feels wonder at the Asatanai. <clears throat> and more than more than any of these things, he has found out that his mother lives, right? For, because of what Grisenfall has told him. 
and if she grieves him then that means he is still loved by someone so he wants to find his mother he wants to steal her and find a place to hide so that there will be peace, peace. there will be peace right so uh, because this has gone on too long i think we might just split this into two episodes is that okay this is just sure, yeah super long it's a, it's a long it's a long chapter yeah yeah so see you in the next one chapter 6 which is going to be hopefully just lee talking and not me see you there bye bye so oh, welcome back yeah go on sorry sorry i didn't notice you were okay doesn't matter okay so welcome to smiley's or welcome back to smiley's because we are just going on with chapter 6 of forge of darkness by steven erickson as part of our read along and this is the summary episode where lee is going to summarize entire chapter 6 for us in 20 minutes or less is that the time you're going to take uh, uh okay no i guess i, I guess I, yeah no, that's not happening no. but um yeah maybe we should address something for a second because you know this is not the way you looked the last episode we recorded yeah and you look somewhat different now i think we should just acknowledge it and keep moving on let's go <laughs> so <clears throat> what happens in chapter 6 so uh first and foremost we are in uh, hosthold within the great bellowing forges of hosthold uh the master of the forge and progenitor of the hostomily hostenerald proclaims that one day he shall be a child again before a startled if slightly drunk kilaris for smith the herald is actually quite articulate and his words confuse the captain he speaks of childhood but the world that gets kilaris's attention is weapons for that is the reason he's here he seeks a weapon from the host forges for his lord and amander to snap herald out of his term for the poetic kilaris raises that issue to his lord and amander's commission isn't political trust me bro <laughs> and the captain calls upon the honor of tradition instead and amander wishes for the silent blade which is not enough for a host blade uh, and one to be a blade of truth in silent concord with its wielder we know of like two such blades one being quinaris and the other being spinox right the pre-awakening uh, pre-awakening yeah so herald takes a bit oddly to this because uh while an amander is purportedly aware of the secret of the host swords and would not give the secret away the request he makes is not impossible to fulfill Henrald's life is proof of that much. There is chaos in every blade, and no mortal smith can actually counter it. And Amander's suggestion is that it be quenched in the sorcery of darkness, which Henrald also takes oddly because he once made Mother Dark Scepter, but he hardly understands her power. Actually, Henrald scantly understands most wielders of power. Power implies that one who wields it lives in fear, but also that the devoid of it also lives in fear. And so we conclude that power is a means to dispel said fear. That unfortunately does not last, and so Henrald concludes that power is both meaningless and delusional. Kilaris counters with an example from the wars. The Forlken wielded power and sought to subjugate or destroy the Taist. There's nothing delusional about that. Henrald, perhaps rather optimistically, claims that no Taist would kneel in slavery and if true power required that the forlken killed every dyson court galene is that not wholly delusional yeah 
Harald does not answer. Instead, he changes the subject, but Harald does not relent, and Amanda wishes a sword with which to drink the blood of darkness. Uh, Sorcery which Harald both does not understand and cannot in good faith countenance. He can also not deny an Amanda, so he makes a simple request of Kelharis. When, not if, uh, the blade is to be sanctified, he wishes to be there, to witness and to know the nature of Mother Duck's power. If, indeed, she actually uses a, uh, you know, blood, blood sorcery, she will know. Alas, yeah. No, no, I just said blood, yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing, I was just prompting uh, Alas, you. yeah. If Mother Dark, however, dwells in darkness, and so it is very possible that Henerald may see nothing. And he says, now I understand he says the that now, yeah, of her power. nature of her power. Yeah. Yeah. Symbolism. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, yeah. Uh, Kelaris is somewhat unbalanced by the conversation and perhaps slightly wasted. Uh, he walks off into the main hall to meet his newfound companion, Galarbaris. The main hall is a mess. There's some sort of ceremony ongoing, but Kelaris recognizes pretty much nobody. Uh, nobody, including a... Taurus Redone. Yeah. Sorry, that was an unintended pun, isn't it? About the mess. It was a mess. Which was a mess. Go on, go on. It's okay. It's a mess where people are sitting and eating because all the soldiers have arrived and it's also a mess because people have just, you know, they're drinking and making making a mess. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I mean... I'm so sorry. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I get, no, no, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, Galar Baras He recognizes is... nobody, uh, nobody, which includes Taurus Redown, which is the commander of the Hus Legion. Uh, Doris, as is common for the woman, is getting blind drunk. Kilharis finds Galar, being miserable as he's unable to stomach alcohol, and his one-time lover is about 20 paces that way, guzzling away. Uh, and the two discuss Kilharis' meeting with Henerald. Turns out that something, which Galar names the loss of iron, affects Henerald, which probably is something akin to heavy metal poisoning. We're not sure yeah, which it's, one. It's dementia. It's some sort of dementia, hopefully. But... <clears throat> but uh, I don't know if you're going to mention that, but what I found very interesting was that when Calaras says something like, uh, no, but he seems very, you know, very sharp-witted, that, you know, in when matters of serious discussions happen, that he immediately seems to perk up, and he says, no, no, that is his defense. That's his, that's the way he's countering this dementia, because he's trying his best to keep himself sharp and <clears throat> not lose his wits completely or something. That That was very interesting to see. No? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, as you said, his equity is not in doubt to others, but Henerald does seem to be losing himself, and so he fights in the only way he can. He sharpens his wit, and he employs poetic language. So, Kalaras assures Kalar that the Lord's condition won't affect an Amander, and even makes light of the situation by pointing out that an Amander would probably nod thoughtfully and concur with Henerald's assertions on childhood, because of course he would. Uh, following this, Kilaris gets further blind drunk and wanders off, leaving Galar to face his one beloved alone. Thoris cuts straight to the chase. Galar is, alas, in no mood for just directness because he's not drunk. Uh, Thoris has come from the south border, while her husband, who is Count Vestain, son of Henerald, has taken up a post in Glimmer Fate, overlooking the Wardens, leaving Galar Paris, a man of the plains, locked up in the citadel. He chafes, because of course he does. But Taurus seeks to reassure him, 
she fails and resorts to the classic. The carnal desires of his flesh could have been stated by their priestesses in the Citadel, and in so doing, she misses the whole fucking point, or so it seems to Galar. <laughs> Both Galat and Galar are being celibate, refusing to take women to their beds in the absence of love. Thoras is, alas, not such a woman. She pours herself yet more around, and Galar realizes that he won't be spending the, light, the night alone. You missed the best part. You missed the best part Did she I? tells about Galat Hustain. She says something like, uh, do you know what it feels like to walk in the trenches all your life? Does it come up later or is it... I think that was in this scene. Because she thinks that... Tell me. Khaled Hustain is so so awesome in every way that she feels inferior to him and that she's so sure of his mm-hmm. loyalty and that's what pushes her to do these things. And I found it very, mm-hmm. very interesting. It was, it was nicely written. Do you know how it feels like right. to... <clears throat> yeah, that that bit. Yeah, sorry. Go on. Yeah. That's no, no, no. So, uh, scene two actually has my boys in Nerd Sore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're joined by uh, Karas Palainis, who is, as usual, for the series, thinking about his days past, how since the Sirk and Ral have left, he has actually come close to enjoying his stay here. Alas, that is not to last, because this is Karas Palo, and my man's a sociopath. So, yeah. Um, your standard's portrait has buried this, itself in his mind, yes? This yeah. chapter is full of your boys. All your boys are in this chapter, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. 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 So, this is not the last because Karaspalo is a bit of a sociopath, and uh, your standard's portrait has actually buried itself in his mind in its brazenly <laughs> political outlook. It's far too obvious motivation beneath it. And it calls him because that reflects poorly back on him. Especially since Karaspala often finds himself disagreeing with the motivations underlying this piece. To him, painting and art is warfare. And, of course, the only person who would agree with such notions is Galan. Do you, do you think this anyway. is a bit, uh, bit outside, a bit meta? Where the, poet, the, the painter, he knows what, what is expected. He knows what will make him successful, but... He chafes at it, isn't it? He would he would rather paint Ursander as what he sees instead of making him a man who can prevent civil war. That's coming up, right? Yeah. If someone can prevent civil war, it's him there. I don't know. Yeah. Because yeah. at some point you're going to choose commercial success versus artistic sensibilities, isn't it? That's what Kataspala is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. We'll talk about that later. Anyway. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, your Sanders portrait was filled with Catespala's wounds and inner conflict, but that was only for him to see. He had learned long ago how to hide his hurts, and he knew that uh, an eye uh, pleased is an eye seduced, and your Sander was well pleased. Just as he was unable to discern the meaning beneath the surface, so too was everyone else. Nobody, save for Catespala and maybe, maybe Galan, could see the truth yeah. underlying the portrait. So, Gaspala had painted a man worthy of being Mother Dirk's husband. A man of strength, a man of certain regard, of iron will, and unbreakable might. Nobody would see the underside of such things. The cruelty, the lack of empathy, the unreasonable expectations heaped upon his followers. Nobody would understand. Not even Galan. Nobody would know that this man... Vathar Sander, as portrayed by Kataspalainas, terrified the artist to the core. 
Yikes, dude. <laughs> um, there's a lot to say on this. I think I'll save it for later. Do you have anything to add? Um, not particularly. No. Where are you going? Never. Do, do, so, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. This, this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. So, to get us all, there is no god but beauty, and no words with which to worship it but love, and that does not but torment them endlessly. Your Sandra snaps him out from his trance and invites you to dinner. Katasmala, still absorbed in his thoughts, almost believes that the man's portrait is speaking instead. The commander is well pleased indeed, but something is off. Katasmala mentions a bit offhandedly that his portrait can follow him to wherever he may reside, and that wraps off badly on him. To amend this, the artist lets your Sandra know that he has turned down hundreds of commissions, but accepted this on the basis that he, and he alone, is capable of painting a man that is able to avert civil war. What more I just brought out, right? Your sender really doesn't like that, and it bears fruit to look into your sender's reasoning. He doesn't want to be Mother Nurk's husband, he doesn't want to leave Nerd Sore, and virtually none of what the portrait portrays is in accordance to his will, pun intended. Um, yeah. I, I so. don't know, I, I didn't get that. No, uh, the portrait portrays, yeah, never mind. Oh, Good. Yeah, good one. Yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, according to Jir Sander, if the nobility so resents Draconis, and they do, uh, they ought to challenge on their darker self, which he did. Alas, they won't, because, well, because they're cowards. Says Katasmala on me, I promise. Uh, the conversation shifts to the latter, to Katasmala, who does not always paint what he sees, but what he fears, and that reflects just as much of himself as of the subject of the painting, upon said painting. Unlike other lesser artists, Kataspala's failings are not so easily discerned by the layman's eyes, and that, Eurysander says, will fail to be captured by the artists in Kirkanus. The two thus depart the scene, as Kataspala has a wedding to attend to, and the conversation has grown perhaps more than a little fraught. Thoughts? Well, maybe, maybe he was just reminded of Anestia. And, you know. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Speaking of, um, the next scene is in the hills of your day's ride from House Ennis uh, with Krill Durav, who is hunting Korakalo. He has found one, slain, probably decades yeah. ago by now, uh, its skull being mounted as a trophy to commemorate the kill, and that has him thinking. Shocker, I know. <laughs> Killing and hunting has become a rite of passage for the diced, a civilization that has long past grown the need for food, to hunt for food. Rather, I don't, They're not such <laughs> advanced that they have outgrown the need for food, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah, they've long past grown the need to hunt for food, but they still do it. For and sport. To, cruel, to krill, that is pathetic in a way, this blatant disrespect to nature. Is it practice for war, this incessant hunting of animals to the extinction? He has had uh, weapon training, another necessary uh, rite of passage among the Taist. And he thinks to himself, how sad is that? Yeah, yeah. So his thoughts were once more interrupted by a passing troop of Legion soldiers, riding at a walking pace, escorting hostages. <clears throat> by Krill's calculations, they, I'll get to that in one sec. 
by Krill's calculations, they shouldn't be here because he's on the other side of the river in a season when the fording of said river is dangerous and there really shouldn't be any soldiers here. The only outpost nearby is Set is Hold, which is really, really north. So what are these people doing here? <clears throat> he identifies himself and the captain of the troops seems to uh, be aware of Krill's position. He is a hostage to Hassanis. He is fleeing from a wedding of a woman who doesn't know his life. And the captain identifies himself as Captain Scarabanderas. He is journeying to collect the jelly hostages, which he has done, and to attend the ceremony of Anissa's wedding. He requests that Krill escort them back. And uh, I'm going to pause here and note that in the prologue of Midnight Tides, we learn, sort of, that Scara is purportedly the cause of Andrus' grief. Just, just putting that out there. <laughs> you know, just in case of them, yeah. You know what? We should just discard the entire book of the Fallen. Oh yeah, I no, yeah, yeah. but we I'm should, just saying not. this in case it becomes important. No, it doesn't matter. Scara Bandar is here. Is he's one of my favorites? So, especially with this so, first joke he does. Yeah. yeah, so Skara in this scene seems to be shockingly commiserating. He understands Krill's predicament, and he elects not to speak of it any further, out of a measure of respect. And is probably the first and only person to make Krill feel welcome in his company, because he is a Durav, after all, and where else would he find company but in the troop of soldiers? Uh, to Krill's inquiry, Skara responds that the 25 whelps, soul-taken hounds, one and all, he is bringing to the dice to may well come back to bite them. <laughs> They yeah. exchange looks, and <laughs> our Tice captain laughs at his own dad joke. As he should, yeah. Yeah. So, Scara was done dirty. Justice for Scara. <laughs> uh, but yeah, well, yeah. <clears throat> so, back at Enes' house, Enesia is mad that Krill had the audacity to leave. She blames oh, Jane oh, for this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, this, is all, very, it, this is very good. I'm just... Happy we are yeah. at this It is uh, her father's responsibility to make sure propriety is observed and regards the hostage. And she is irrationally angry. Okay, maybe not irrationally, but we're going to leave that aside for now. Um, Jane expected this and reasons that Krill has left for a hopeless quest because this, his time in his home is almost over and it's about time he actually got a taste of the outside world. A world in flux is frightening and bewildering, and while it may feel certain beneath Anestia's feet, it is shaking violently beneath Krill's. His family has grown around him, and most of them, being soldiers, have died in the wars. His only surviving relative at about the same age is Spinnock, who is a warden, and that is not quite the fate that Anestia has in mind for young Krill. Jane more or less lies through his teeth about wishing to be rid of both of her and Krill, and SD seems to actually pick up on this. Uh, but I like not to give it much thought, and they have sort of a, a father-daughter banter thing. Like the guy's laughing, or like, like smiling ear to ear, and his daughter's like, I okay, fine, I'm not gonna think about you anymore, leave me alone. <laughs> it's very sweet. It's just very sweet that the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, there is a metaphor here about fruit and being stained. I'm not the one to decode it. Yeah, I don't no, know. I, I don't want to. We can just leave it alone for now. Okay, <clears throat> sure. So, yeah, uh, Anestia then concludes that Andrew's influence in the Citadel can get Krill a cozy posting. 
because nepotism never truly goes away, does it? And the Taist have a whole history of threesome, so that's God. sorry. Okay, it's, I it's not didn't... my fault. This is what the Taist society has become. It's not where I saw that was going. Okay. Yeah. yeah sorry. So uh, we're off to Bardalak and back to Orphandal, who is leaving. He wanders oh. on the loss of a friend, a 10 year old stable boy named Renek, who has now grown relatively distant to Orphandal and can figure out no reason or way to approach the boy. He contemplates that nobody would miss him should he one day disappear. Yikes. Uh, and then imagine himself relatively older, at about Renek's age. Uh, then his mother's age, then his grandmother's age, and concludes that he'd be fairly similar to all of them. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. More fun so, could the truth with which... Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the troop with which Orphan Alice Ride arrives, and uh, Renek, despite the fact that Neris has taken care of the arrangements, steps up to help Orphantel mount and give directions to the troop. They have a fraught farewell, and Orphantel rides off. So, it turns out Renek has turned hostile because of Neris' implicit threats. He is virtually the only person among his family capable of working, and if he were to disobey Neris, his family would no doubt starve. Uh, despite this, Renek laments his cowardice for not being there for Orphantel, but rationalizes it, Cognizant of the lie that he's telling himself despite his age, in that it didn't make the, the farewell harder for Orphandel. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think everyone knows that has watched the last episode knows my uh, thoughts and feelings on Nerys Trigor a lot. But, on, um, on the... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yikes. Wait. So, uh, Orphantel's mayor is on its last legs, both literally and figuratively. Uh, the boy nonetheless decides that his mayor was once the trusty steed of a hero of the Taist, and that his rider had died from betrayal, because, of course, uh, and his steed now longs for death so it can join its rider, and so on. You, you get the picture by now, and you can probably predict what happens to Orphantel's boundless idealism in Corda Galane. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> Right. Uh, the troop's captain is a man named Haral, a caravan captain, that advises Orphantel to keep close with a man named Grip. Because bad people do bad things to kids. Yikes, dude, he's five. Like, please sugarcoat it a bit next I mean, time. I mean, it's, it's better to say such things to a five-year-old than, you know, <clears throat> you get the message across. I, I, it's fine. It's fine if you ask me. Well, um, Harald's on his last trip, and um, I'm not going to say anything, but, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, Harald was an old soldier from a generation of mostly soldiers. And when Orphantal introduces himself, his name ruffles a few feathers among the group. <clears throat> so apparently his name is from the monk's language, the sheikh. And means something along the lines of unexpected. Though, for those not as well versed in the Sheikh language, it could very well translate to unwanted. One sec. 
Um, <laughs> no, okay. That's another like yeah. Zendel. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I just hit enter and word scrolled up like five pages and I had to scroll back. Anyway. Oh, okay. So yeah, Orphan Tell is on his way to Karkanas, and his name means unwanted slash unexpected. Uh, just put two and two together. Say with my kids. Yikes. <laughs> so somebody put two and two together, uh, a man named Narad, and in spite of Haral's warning, continues to mock Orphantal, at which point Haral goes like ballistic on the guy uh, and virtually leaves him to die at the side of the road. Uh, Narad's face all busted up, and so he makes for the perfect villain in Orphantal's hero's tales. The face of the betrayer, the cruel smile, unable to disguise his shirts. Grip basically tears off and tells something along the lines of he had it coming, let's go. And he makes the boy uh, to take he takes the boy to strike up a tent. Yep. And uh, because we're not done with the yikes POVs yet, we're over in Dragon's Hold with Ibis and Sandalaf. Uh, oh, so yeah. Yeah. Sans Escort has just reached Dragon's Hold and uh, Ibis makes the necessary introductions. So the Master at Arms has rightly concluded that Sand is here through no choice of her own, and many will look down upon this assignment as a breach of propriety. But Ibis is a soldier, and to put it bluntly, he doesn't give a shit. Um, he's, he's a nice person, basically. He is also he is a soldier and a nice person, so yeah. He makes it rather abundantly clear uh, a bit later, but also makes it very clear now that Sand is essentially the mistress of the house in Dracon's absence, and she, as well as he, expects that she is treated as such. In the meantime, we get some backstory in Draconis. He was a wealthy cousin of Shrela. Shrela. Yeah. Uh, Shrela Dracons. Right. And his name is Dracon. You get the point, Lee. Come on. <laughs> Nobody believes this shit, but, you know. Uh, and apparently he fought with distinction during the wars, enough to earn Mother Dracon's regard. So Hilith, which is the head of the house servants, is uh, rather furious with Ivis for according Sandalath the most basic of courtesies and respect. Because how dare he? My lady or something. And she says, you can't give her titles. <laughs> what? Why? What, what are the symbolism there? <laughs> no, 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 not symbolism. Just like pies are great people. Anyway. Ah, gotcha. um, so yeah. As I've mentioned, however, <laughs> Ibis is a soldier through and through and has absolutely no time for this shit. So if Hilith seeks to bully Sandalath, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get through Ibis. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, tough shit. And doubly so tough shit because Sandalath has done this before. She has seen women like Hilith before and she has also seen women like the maids under Hilith before. And now she's an adult, and she's not ready to take to take this crap anymore. And she takes perhaps more than a little joy in the power her newfound position <laughs> extends over Hilith. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure how to take this scene. Can I tell you? Because it seems sure. so odd to me when I read it. And then you know what makes perfect sense? It's just this casteism, classism system. She has one way of dealing with somebody uh, like Ivis, who would be her protector, who would be sort of above her, because, you know, he holds some power. Whereas she is above this lady, isn't it? The housekeeper. She can command the housekeeper. And the way she treats the people who she considers lower than her is this. 
this is the way it it just it just makes perfect sense if you think you know how ingrained it is in their society this is how they treat people yeah 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 Yeah, it, it it took me a while because you know it just doesn't make sense with any the rest of her character isn't it with sandler so uh to conclude the chapter it ends uh, rather po- poetically so uh we start off with henrald's assertion that one day he'll be a child again right yeah here we end with uh, sandler feeling like a child again being reborn in you as a child oh so oh that's nice yeah, yeah. nice so, all right um, But yeah, uh that's the chapter. Um Yes. There's quite a few things to say about it in general, particularly about the characters I actually care for. Obviously, Orphantel's story parallels Arthur somewhat. I mean, there's yeah, some parallels to be seen there. Yeah, yeah. Um there's a lot to say about Yersander and his relation with Mordor and all of that, but Uh I didn't I'm like I said this in the summary and I'll repeat it here I do not know how to take in Sandalas like scenes here mm-hmm. more I give a pretty decent explanation but you're not kind I'm inclined to agree in lack of no I mean it's not very kind but it also seems plausible and like realistic enough that yeah she it's, would do that it's I you know what if I'm being honest this is the way things happen here it's like something i see every day you know at work i am treated differently than say the housekeeper or something it's this is the way it is there's there's no equality when there is no equality in society everyone behaves this way yeah i i might cut this out <laughs> i don't know <laughs> oh yeah okay um i mean yeah. if, if you look at it through this sense because we you know again and again this is what we see right The, the society is exactly like that and mm-hmm. also uh, can i just tell you about the sandalat scene this type of uh, intimidating housekeeper introducing a young woman into the house and all this this is such a like staple in these old old novels like rebecca is the one i read recently i i will not say the author's name i can't say the author's name but uh, it, you know that's that's a standard thing where the housekeeper has all the power and she introduces the new wife into the house takes her around and things like that so it is it is like an inversion of that scene because this young woman is not allowing her to intimidate her right she gives it back she says mm-hmm. this is not the way you're going to do things you're going to listen to me and all that so i i liked mm-hmm. it actually but but then i don't like sandalat as much so it doesn't matter if she's being like this yeah okay right So yeah, the last thing I want to mention before we cut away is uh, Anna Mander mentions the uh, the secret of the Hot Swords. Uh, we don't know what that is in Gorkanas, but from what we little we do know in the Book of the Fallen, it's mentioned that they are quenched in Elaine's blood. Now the only Elaine we've seen is a carcass in Gleamer Fate, so I don't think that's what's going on. <laughs> here uh yeah. so take that as you will <clears throat> talking of uh, elaine blood when uh, arathan thinks about you know age of gifts oh, is that is that for the discussion should we keep it for the discussion because we just read it so anyway the... i thought i can't comment on it here oh 
Okay. That's what so, I'm going to say. All right. So let's find up. Uh, okay. So thanks for your time. You have something? No, no, no. Yeah. Right. So, thank you for listening. So if you stick around, I think the next episode will be discussion of these chapters with spoilers mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Yep. So, I don't think we have a lot. It's going to be fairly short. So, yeah, ideally. Hopefully we'll see you But there. This is and, me we're talking about. So, yeah. And, <laughs> and so. you know, hopefully we'll have chapter 7 and 8 the next time. Let's see. Yep. Bye. See Good you night. Around. Bye.